0: I call that integrative health. Uh, integrative health is a little different than complementary medicine. It's different than integrative medicine. Uh, integrative health is the merger of conventional care, like I learned and you learned in, in, uh, in your own medical training. Um, evidence-based, complementary practices, non-drug approaches, and then self-care, behavior and lifestyle. If you put those three together, together, you have integrative health, and now we're talking. Now we're Now we're able to really not only prevent a lot of illnesses, but in many cases, reverse a lot of the chronic illnesses that, play, that plague our country today.
1: This is episode number 116 with Dr. Wayne Jonas. This episode is brought to you by ButcherBox. I'm really excited to share with you that this month, in addition to $20 off your first order, ButcherBox has a very special gift that is so good, I can't even mention it on the podcast. You can learn more about it at butcherbox.com forward slash Julie, where you can find all the details. So if you know me, you know I care a lot about where my food comes from, and that's particularly true when it comes to meat. I believe even meat can have a place in a well-rounded diet but there's a huge difference when it comes to animals that are raised in feedlots and that are fed primarily corn and soy and routinely given growth hormones and antibiotics and those that are responsibly raised than their natural diet and never given growth hormones or antibiotics. High quality meat like this is hard to find but ButcherBox makes it super easy because they deliver 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, and heritage breed pork as well as wild Alaskan sock Salmon directly to your doorstep. All of their products are humanely raised and never ever given antibiotics or hormones. This gives me some peace of mind knowing that I can trust my meat is the highest quality out there and will taste amazing. Plus, they offer free shipping anywhere in the contiguous 48 United States, which is awesome. Right now, ButcherBox has put together a very special deal for all Pursuing Health listeners. If you order your first box, you'll get a very special gift plus an additional $20 off. And as I mentioned, that special gift is so epic, I can't even talk about it here. You'll have to go to butcherbox.com forward slash Julie to check out the deal and get your $20 off your first order. Now remember, it's only available until supplies last, so go check it out right now. Once again, that's $20 off plus a special gift with your first box by going to butcherbox.com forward slash Julie check it out I promise it will be worth it. Welcome to pursuing health I'm Julie Foucher family medicine resident and former CrossFit Games athlete here I bring to you information and inspiration from experts and everyday individuals for how to use lifestyle to maximize health. Thank you so much for joining me now let's get started with this week's episode. Hey there, and welcome back to Pursuing Health. In this episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Wayne Jonas, who is a practicing family physician, a widely published scientific researcher, author, and expert in integrative health. As I mentioned early in the episode, I first heard of Dr. Jonas's work through one of my own residency faculty who suggested that I read his book called How Healing Works. This book completely changed the way that I think about healing and is one that I now frequently recommend to friends, colleagues, or anyone in healthcare. Dr. Jonas is incredibly accomplished. Some of his past roles include serving as the director of the NIH's Office of Alternative Medicine, the director of the World Health Organization's Center for Traditional Medicine, director of medical research fellowship at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. Dr. Jonas is also a retired lieutenant colonel for the United States Army Medical Corps. He currently works as a family physician in Fort Belvoir Community Hospital Pain Clinic, as well as a clinical professor of family medicine at Georgetown University and executive director of the Samueli Integrative Health Programs. Dr. Jonas and I sat down recently to discuss his career path, some fascinating research on the placebo effect, and the importance of cultural context in healing rituals how our current healthcare system contributes to only 20% of the health in our country, and how we can tap into that extra 80% of healing through lifestyle, environment, relationships, and spiritual development. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I know Dr. Jonas's work will continue to shape my own practice of family medicine for years to come. So I hope you all enjoy listening to it as well. A few quick reminders before we get started. First, this episode is produced by CrossFit Beyond the Whiteboard, the best workout tracking in the biz and the one I've been using since 2009. You can learn more at beyondthewhiteboard.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please head over to iTunes to subscribe and consider giving it a rating. I'm also always looking for inspiring stories to share. So if you or someone you know has used lifestyle to overcome a serious health challenge, please send your story to me at info at Finally, please remember that although I am now officially a doctor, this podcast is meant to share the experiences of individuals and does not provide medical advice. So with that, we'll get started with episode number 116 of Pursuing Health featuring Dr. Wayne Jonas. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I am very thank excited you. to be here with Dr. Wayne Jonas, so thank mm-hmm. you for joining me. My pleasure. Um, I wanted to start with how I first heard about you and mm-hmm. read your book. Um, actually, it was maybe two years ago. My husband and I were both in the same residency program. We happened to both be on inpatient service at the same during the same week, and we were with one of our faculty who... I can't remember what we had been talking about on rounds that day, but he brought up your book. He said that somehow he had gotten it in his mailbox and he read it and it was the most, um, mind-blowing, practice-changing book that he's read in the past 30 years. And so oh. we said, okay, we've got to read this. <laughs> um, and since then, many of the residents in our program have read it. And um, right. so thank you for all of your work. I'm excited to oh. talk a little bit about it today. My
0: pleasure. I wish I had read it before I uh, wrote it when I was in residency 35 years ago.
1: <laughs> well, thank yeah. you for saving us that legwork and in introducing us to these concepts so early. Mm-hmm. No, my pleasure.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I know you talk a lot about the importance of of meaning and purpose and I thought maybe we could yeah. just start with what brought you first into a career in medicine and then why family medicine
0: yeah so uh, so I probably knew or thought I would might be a doctor since I was 12 actually mm-hmm. um, my uh, father was a chaplain in the military, okay. and uh, after the wars were over, he, he ended up going through three wars. Wow. Uh, but after the last war was over, the Vietnam War, he asked himself, uh, well, where's the most suffering? And it said, well, it's in the hospital. So mm-hmm. he ended up becoming a hospital chaplain, which was a new thing back mm. then, where they specifically trained um, chaplains to be hospital work just in the hospital. So I asked him one day, I said, well, you know, I thought it was the doctors that are going to the hospital. What do you do in the hospital? He says, well, I help people heal. And that startled me even more because I thought, well, I thought it was the doctors that are helping people <laughs> heal. And he says, well, I help uh, I help them heal through the spiritual path, through mm. their through the inner path. Uh, um, and so that always stuck with me because then when I uh, went to uh, was going to go to medical school, I was fortunate to be accepted into medical school two years early with the opportunity to explore other things. Oh. And so one of the things I did was I. Um, Uh, I said, I want to find out, you know, what does a chaplain do uh, in the hospital? So I was a student chaplain doing what's called clinical pastoral education, a CPE training, knowing that I wasn't going to be a chaplain. I was going to become a medical Mm -hmm. uh, physician. Uh, But I went in and I was given permission through Union Theological Seminary to to do a CPE training program for several months. And uh, so uh, my first or second day, uh, I was assigned a patient uh, who had agreed to see a student chaplain uh, <laughs> and I went up uh, to uh, to his room. He was an older man in his mid 70s who had metastatic lung cancer and he was in the hospital on morphine to control the pain. He mm-hmm. was on an IV morphine um, infusion. And so I went up into his room and I sat next to him Uh, and I thought, well, he asked for chaplain, asked for someone to minister, but he was asleep.
3: Hmm.
0: And I thought, oh, well, he's just zonked out for morphine. (laughs) This should be easy, right? I'm, I'm, I'm all of 23 at the time and had no idea what I was doing. And I uh, sat down uh, to his bed and I closed my eyes and I just started to say some prayers and said, well, I'll just report back that I just said a few prayers. Mm And then while my eyes are closed, I suddenly feel his hand on my hand. (laughs)
3: Mm. (laughs) And
0: he had woken up and he'd reached over and he'd touched my hand and he said, son, you're gonna be okay.
3: Wow. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, And I realized then that he was healing me. Mm. Uh, And so uh, that insight uh, around healing as being uh, something that emerged out of relationship, that emerged out of the interaction between two people that were looking to help each other was the heart of healing. Mm. Uh, and so uh, he found something that he could do uh, that was meaningful and purposeful for him. I was trying to find something that I could do that was meaningful and purposeful for him. And as we began to talk, because uh, then I began to, to, to relate to him, mm-hmm. uh, he said, uh, uh, I, I asked him, well, what do you want to get out of the last part of your life here? And he, he was very clear about it. None of the other physicians actually had heard this because nobody had asked her the question, right. And he said, uh, "I realize I'm dying, and uh, my daughter's uh, is going to be married." And I want to be there for that. And I want the, the, they're they're going to have the ceremony in the hospital room, but I want to be clear for it. So I want to learn how to control my pain differently. Mm -hmm. So we had a discussion about what he did Mm -hmm. to control his pain on his own, besides the medication. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I love music, especially classical music, especially Bach. And when I listen to it, it just takes me off and I just feel great. And so I said, well, why don't we try something like that around the time of your of your of when your daughter comes in to get, get married? And so we set up uh, earphones that weren't quite as sophisticated <laughs> as these, but some things that could really surround him with that. And when mm-hmm. we played it, his pain would significantly drop. Wow. He'd feel much better. Uh, he was clearer. And so we timed the playing of this around the time that the ceremony uh, was going on. And he was able to actually participate fully awake, alert, etc., cetera, uh, not being, uh, uh, you know, zonked out on on IV morphine, and so that lesson, uh, that was second lesson that I learned from that, mm-hmm. is that the patient actually is in the driver's seat. And this was before the Institute of Medicine did their uh, classic study in mm-hmm. 2001 called Crossing the Quality Chasm, which was how do you do quality health care, which is said basically put the patient in the driver's seat. That mm-hmm. launched the whole area called patient-centered care. But I realized early on that you had to ask, what's meaningful for you in life? And that should drive the evidence that you bring in, the interactions and the therapies that you bring in, uh, and the healing components that you bring in. And little did I know at that time, that 80% of those factors were factors I wasn't going to learn about in medical school. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I thought I'm going to learn all this stuff <laughs> when I get into medical school. Uh, but it did, uh, it, it did show me that um, asking what matters and then looking at uh, what the patient said helped mm-hmm. has to be a key part of how medicine should be practiced. And so the only profession, the only specialty I could think of that could do that was family medicine. Yes. Now, it's not true. There are lots, <laughs> of, of, me- there are lots of specialties <laughs> that can do that now. But um, uh, family medicine had this idea of something called the biopsychosocial model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had read the papers on that, and I was impressed by that, and I realized it meant taking care of the whole person. Uh, not just their body, but their social environment, uh, but uh, their, uh, the physical environment that they're in, uh, and something that I've added uh, since Mm -hmm. then because of my experiences like I've just described is the spiritual environment. Mm -hmm. So I call it the biopsychosocial spiritual model Uh and that's what family medicine and it really is what all medicine should be anchored in. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing to have that experience, even prior to starting medical school. I was
0: very lucky. Yeah, I wow. was lucky.
1: And yeah. you mentioned um, that there is this 80% of healing that traditional medicine is not necessarily tapping into. And so I want to dig into that a little bit. I think you call it the healing paradox. And right. you have you know done a lot of research and looked at a lot of research around this, um, where Obviously, right now, when we're trying to test new drugs and new therapies, we're looking at how much extra benefit does that therapy give beyond a placebo? It always has to be compared to a placebo. But actually, there's so much healing that happens with often with just the placebo that we're ignoring because we're so focused on this incremental benefit. Um, and that's true whether it's traditional, conventional drugs or some surgeries, but also even the integrative therapies Um, as well and so that's true one of the um you know so i'm interested in this talking about some of that research and then where um where that extra 80 percent is coming from
0: yeah so we can talk about placebo in a bit but uh, one of the things that um i discovered and now it's been well discovered and is out there in Mm -hmm. lots of different data sets uh Uh, and been published multiple times is that if uh, we had full health care coverage for everybody in the country, you know, universal health insurance, Mm -hmm. it's a big push for it right now that Mm -hmm. there's a new election coming up and everybody (laughs) wants to do that. Uh, Even if we, but if we had say platinum level health care, like the patients that I see, I see patients in the military, they Mm -hmm. have platinum level, they have access to any kind of medication, any Mm -hmm. kind of specialist. Uh, If everybody had that, they actually know how much health that would produce and it's about 15 to 20 percent they've actually done the studies showing that uh, uh, Robert Johnson has commissioned uh, a uh, a tracking system Mm -hmm. that goes all in every county of the world they've shown that about 20 percent of our health is produced from medical care from what we do in the office and Mm -hmm. what I learned in medical school the rest of it comes from three basic places um, one is the physical environment, the place that you're in, mm-hmm. okay, seems to have a, a big uh, influence, your zip code, mm-hmm. even more than your genetic code. Mm-hmm. Um, the lifestyle and behavior components, so these come down to what I call the big four, stress, sleep, exercise, and food.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh,
0: and then the social and uh, economic environment that you live in, So what's called the social determinants of health. Uh, Housing, whether you have access to food, transportation, education, those areas, the social determinants, those have about a 40% contribution. Each of those has Mm -hmm. close to a 40% contribution. And so this is where health comes from. So if healthcare wants to be part of the solution, that is, if they want to be part of producing health and well-being Mm -hmm. in the country, they need to get out of uh, the narrow box that they have that's only producing the 20%, the pills, procedures, and uh, the non-placebo part, Mm -hmm. uh, and get into the uh, behavioral areas and get into the social determinants of health and create a system that actually supports the patient in enhancing those kinds of self-care and those environmental components and social components that are there. And if they do that, then we're going to find that we'll be able to not only improve health significantly more than we are now,
3: Mm -hmm. uh,
0: but it's going to be cheaper. It's going to be less expensive because many of these uh, self-care approaches are less expensive Mm -hmm. than what we currently do, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, wait till somebody gets sick and then throw very expensive treatments at
1: them. Right pay for it on the back end with a lot of suffering in the middle. That's
0: right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so it's that 80% that uh, that the book is uh, about and Mm -hmm. it's about how to implement that actually mm-hmm. in your daily life. Uh, if you'd like to make sure to identify and bring in that other 80% so mm-hmm. that you have 100% of what uh, tools that are available. Mm-hmm. And if you're a provider, how do you bring it into your practice? And I call that integrative health. Uh, integrative health is a little different than complementary medicine. It's different than integrative medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, integrative health is the merger of conventional care like I learned and you learned in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in your own medical training um evidence based complementary practices non drug approaches mm-hmm. and then self care behavior and lifestyle if you put those three together together you have integrative health and now we're talking now we're now we're able to really not only prevent a lot of illnesses but in many cases reverse a lot of the chronic illnesses that play, plague our country today
1: absolutely absolutely um going back a little bit to some of these studies with placebo or just not necessarily i know you don't really like the term placebo but um some of the studies looking at those other effects that are impacting the way that people respond to interventions Um, there was one i think you talked about um, that highlights how the cultural context is very important for delivering these therapies and how much people are going to respond to different placebos so for example if you have If you're here in a Western culture and you give someone a placebo pill, they may respond very well to that. But if you give a placebo pill to someone in a culture where pills are not their go-to expected therapy, they may not have the same response.
0: Right. Well, I know medical uh, uh, students and residents are very interested in the placebo concept. (laughs) Uh, um, Several years ago, I wrote an article with Dan Moorman from the University of Michigan in which... Um, we said uh, we should do away with the term placebo effect and Mm -hmm. call it the meaning response, the meaning and context response, because um, uh, the effect that we observe within the placebo arms of studies, when we uh, randomize people to get a chemical uh, drug, for example, and then get a placebo, and then we look at the healing rates. uh, Most of the time, for at least for chronic diseases, the uh, healing rate that occurs in the placebo arms are so large that we end up having to do large multi-center studies to show that little amount <laughs> that, the, that the chemical actually produces on top of it mm-hmm. but that's what makes the profits right and so that sort of drives doing those very large studies right. but if we turn the lens around and we say well what's under the hood of placebo let's just take the placebo label off and let's see what are the other things that are going on in that mm-hmm. then we begin to get good science-based tools that you can bring into any practice using any tool and it will enhance... The healing response. And so it should be really called the healing response instead of the placebo response. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of examples of this. Um, uh, one of the big myths is that we think it's just up in our head, what mm-hmm. you believe consciously in your head. And that does have some influence. So your expectation will influence the outcome. Um, mm-hmm. But even more important than that is the cultural expectation, the cultural context mm-hmm. that you just um, uh, alluded to. Uh, and one of the best in uh, sort of classic examples is. Um, uh, studies that have shown that um, bright colored pills, such mm-hmm. as orange and yellow, tend to be stimulatory. If you give somebody a bright color pill, they'll say, "Oh, I'm now more alert. I can think better." If you give them blue and purple, then they tend to get more depressed. It's more depressive and mm-hmm. sed- sedative, mm-hmm. and they'll feel sleepy and that kind of stuff. And that was true pretty much across the board, except an anthropologist noticed that that didn't occur in Italy. Huh. Uh, and he said, well, why is that? Blue was not producing these con- consistent sort of sedative yeah. and calming effects in Italy. So he went into Italy and uh, he started asking, you know, people, well, what do you associate with blue, mm-hmm. blue colors? Mm-hmm. And uh, very, very different responses between the men and the women at the time that he did this study. Um, when he asked the men, well, what what comes to mind when you say blue? They said, well, the national football team, oh. and that's exciting, and if asked the women it's a Catholic country Uh and the first thing they would respond frequently was oh it's the color of the Virgin Mary that's what she's dressed in Uh a very calming color and so there are very different responses (laughs) and that's an example of the meaning Mm -hmm. that was embedded for different populations and now that's been looked at now at many many different uh, many different uh, cultures Mm -hmm. in fact uh, the the meaning response that occurs across cultures Often is the determining factor as to whether you can prove a drug drug works or not, mm. uh, because if the uh, placebo response in the placebo arms, if the meaning response is very high mm-hmm. in the placebo arms, it's going to be hard to distinguish between the active drug even when it works, even when you know the drug works. Right. Okay, whereas if it's very low, then it's easy to distinguish, and that's what determines whether it's statistically significant between mm-hmm. the two arms. So the statistical significance is frequently driven by the Context and the meaning that is uh, produced in Very those areas.
1: It makes sense why so many studies. There's so few studies that can actually be replicated because probably when you try to replicate a study, there's slightly different meaning and cultural context in that new group of patients.
0: That's correct, and uh, and there's even drift over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 placebo treatments of any type have uh, gradually gotten better over time, no matter what you're doing. So if mm-hmm. you just look at the placebo arms mm-hmm. of drug studies for antidepressants, mm-hmm. the placebo arms consistently begin to perform better over time. Wow. So now it's actually more difficult to prove that a new antidepressant works because mm-hmm. the placebo part is, is responding. What? Why that is, who knows? I mean, you know, we're maybe more open to and more involved in and, and uh, you know, more, maybe we have better expectation as a culture that uh, mm-hmm. the treatment of depression is possible.
1: Hmm. And interesting, while we're on depression, you had mentioned a study in the book about where, we, where I think it was done at NIH, where they were comparing sertraline and SSRI, yeah. St. John's wort, and then the placebo. And, you know, the purpose of the study was to compare all three of these treatments. In the end, they ended up everyone basically had the same response to all three of the treatments. And of course, the drug company used that to say, hey, St. John's Wort is no better than, right. than our drug. But interestingly, there was something that happened outside of the drug just by the process of being prescribed and taking this medication that helped people to heal their depression.
0: Right, and the person running that study I know very well, and he's a very kind, empathetic <laughs> healer, And I, so I wasn't surprised that the placebo <laughs> response was pretty high in that in that aspect. Yeah, th- I did uh, that study, or we, we, we sup- funded that study when I ran the Office of Alternative Medicine at NIH. We were looking for a large... Uh, randomized control trial in a natural product that mm-hmm. we could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, the FDA said, well, you should put in an active drug mm-hmm. uh, because uh, if it doesn't work, if the active drug doesn't work, then it means that, you know, you it wasn't a fair test mm-hmm. of the. And I picked St. John's wort because uh, I was stationed in Germany when I was in the military mm-hmm. and I worked with the local German providers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did all of our transport. I ran a remote hospital. And uh, the Germans were routinely prescribing, the German physicians were routinely prescribing St. John's mm-hmm. Wort for depression. In fact, mm-hmm. it was prescribed more often than drugs were, than the standard uh, antidepressants were mm-hmm. by German physicians. And so, and they pointed me to research that most of which had been done in Germany saying that looked like it worked better than placebo. So I said, this is a good test mm-hmm. all right, uh, to put in. And so we actually did uh, that study which is rarely done nowadays where there is a a placebo arm an active arm Mm -hmm. uh, and the test drug that you're trying to look at Mm -hmm. Uh, and yet those are very instructive studies uh, and it showed basically that the placebo part of the therapeutic intervention was so large that it wiped out both the effect. It was no, no. no it was an um, uh, uh, not statistically different from the not only the herb St. John's Wort, mm-hmm. but the drug also in those areas. <laughs> so it actually wasn't a fair test. Yeah. Uh, but that's not how it was reported because the <laughs> drug company wanted to show, hey, there's no competition here for us, right? Right. <laughs> right. Very
1: interesting. Yeah. Um. And how you mentioned as well the kind of the drift in this placebo over time, you had also talked about a study that showed that even when people were told they were taking placebo, so they knew they weren't getting the quote-unquote real drug, they were still seeing a positive response.
0: Yeah. So um, I think this is an important area. It's called open placebo studies. Mm-hmm. The the field was launched by a friend of mine at Harvard by the name of uh, Ted uh, Kapchuk. You should mm-hmm. have him on your show, actually. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> you, sh- you should interview him. <laughs> uh, he's probably one of the most uh, creative placebo researchers in mm. the country. Uh, or in the even in the world. Um, and uh, what he did, and now there's been multiple studies demonstrating this, is that uh, uh, he asked the question of whether uh, the conscious belief, what the person thought if they were getting uh, a, uh, an active drug or not, mm-hmm. how important was that? Because in almost all the placebo research up to that, blinding people, that is not telling them which one they're on, mm-hmm. was felt to be key. And so what he did is he said, well, I'm not going to blind them. I'm going to tell them that they're on a placebo or Mm -hmm. on an active. And then we'll say, well, if you just go through the process, the likelihood is just going through the process of taking a pill is Mm -hmm. is probably going to help you. Um, But you're on the placebo. Mm -hmm. okay? You're on the sugar pill. And so he did that and he found that uh, the results were uh, almost equal to if it had been blinded the people got better just as uh, as to a great a degree as if were blinded and so that launched the 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 field of open placebo and now that's been demonstrated in multiple conditions multiple mm-hmm. studies including some fairly large ones and what it illustrates is that it's it's uh, it's more than just in our head mm-hmm. <laughs> the physiological response of healing actually emanates from our unconscious more than it does just what we're thinking about when we're Mm -hmm. awake and it's that belief that's embedded in the in the consciousness part which then uh, combined with the ritual which then signals to our body the physiological processes how to go about doing the healing Mm-hmm. It's the intention combined with the ritual combined with the cultural expectation that produces the bulk of the effect. Mm-hmm. And so going through rituals, uh, through multiple studies, this explains uh, why so many different types of healing systems actually work, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though they're completely different. You know, yeah. Chinese medicine with, en- with energy and Ayurveda with consciousness and ours with mo- our molecular models and mm-hmm. that type of thing, uh, they still largely work. Uh, if the culture believes in it, the physician believes in it, that's mm-hmm. very important. Physician needs to believe in it, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, uh, and the ritual of therapy is properly delivered in a way that's caring, empathetic, uh, and enhancing that. Uh, I, I wrote an article several years ago, and I actually put it in the book, where there's a checklist derived from placebo studies mm-hmm. on saying if you wanted to optimize the healing response, mm-hmm. okay, what would you do? Do okay in any therapeutic encounter that you had. And there's about fourteen or fifteen things you could do to actually optimize healing. It's amazing.
1: They probably all take a little bit of time too, or a little bit of you know, thought, a you little know, bit of intention. Some of
0: them do, mm-hmm. yes. Some of them take some time. Many of them don't. Okay. Uh, uh, many of them can actually be embedded mm-hmm. in uh, a delivery that uh, that doesn't take a whole lot of time. Um, positive expectation, uh, empathy, Mm -hmm. listening to the patient, Mm -hmm. um, uh, touching the patient Mm -hmm. makes a big difference poking them seems to be pretty <laughs> pretty <laughs> powerful too because they think they're getting, if the culture believes that yeah. poking is going to do that. Yeah. Uh, needles, for example, a placebo mm-hmm. uh, t- pain treatment delivered through a needle in a culture that believes in injections mm-hmm. will produce a bigger placebo response than a pill. It mm-hmm. uh, doesn't take any more time. It's maybe right. not something that you want to want to do, but uh, <laughs> if you can do other things. Yeah. Uh, some of them do take time. Mm-hmm. Uh, some uh, and, and what I've uh, tried to do in the model, uh, the uh, that I write about in the book is how do we actually take the core of this and actually implement it on our day to day practice mm-hmm. easily within the amount of time that we have mm-hmm. so that you can enhance whatever you're doing and that the patient can be a key part of this. Mm-hmm. This is, this is key. Um, uh, uh, Several uh, studies uh, that are done by uh, Alia Crum from Stanford I write about in the book. Yeah. She has a center for uh, studying what she calls mindset. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, And uh, it doesn't require, uh, r- shifting the mindset doesn't require um, a lot of time. Uh, let me give you an example of mm-hmm. that. Um, this was a very large study. It wasn't done by a lot It was d- done by another um, uh, practitioner uh, in England. Very large study. It was done in family medicine practices. They don't call them that. They called them general practices. General practice there.
2: GP. <laughs> this was like
0: 500 or so general practices, a large number of patients. And once the person had come in, seen the general practitioner, if they had something that there was not a physical thing, they had to shift, okay, if mm-hmm. it was a Functional thing. If it was pain, it was, uh, you know, depression or something like that, which is about 60% of what comes into uh, to medical practices mm-hmm. and especially primary care. They randomized patients to uh, two statements. Um, the title of the study was is there any point to being positive Okay, <laughs> that was the question that they asked
3: uh-huh.
0: and uh, so uh, one statement was sort of a neutral or negative statement like well I don't know what you have mm-hmm. um, you could try this okay and you know I don't know if it'll work or not mm-hmm. but you know if you have any more problems just give me a call right okay <laughs> the other statement was you know very positive a positive therapeutic ritual um, uh, here you know I think what you you have is, is going to improve. Okay. Most functional things do improve. So that's Mm -hmm. a true statement. Uh, why don't you take this? Okay. And if you have any more problems, let me know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. So very positive. It took no different in time. It it took exact same amount of time to do that. And in four weeks they had independent people blindly call these patients up and ask them how they were doing. Mm -hmm. They, they actually gave them a, a, placebo pill. And it was a small amount of vitamin B6 as okay. a placebo pill. Uh, and uh, they called him up and said, well, how's your problem? You know, is it getting better? Do you need to come back in, etc." Mm-hmm. And uh, 60% of the people who had had the positive response, same treatment, uh, said, no, it's all gone. I'm doing fine. Don't need to come back in versus only about 42, I think, or 45% wow. uh, in the ones that had the negative statement. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was highly clinical significant, highly statistically Mm -hmm. significant, didn't take any more time.
1: Right. Little things, but can make a huge difference. Little
0: things make a big difference. If you understand the underlying Mm -hmm. um, biology Mm -hmm. and the underlying evidence, Mm -hmm. uh, and then incorporate that into your practice.
1: Another really interesting concept that you talked about from an example in the book was the idea of training the body to learn to activate a certain response by taking a placebo with a drug and then backing off on yeah. the drug, and I think the example used was a young woman who had autoimmune kidney disease, and she sort of trained herself to, instead of taking this immunosuppressant, to train herself to get that same response by smelling roses. Yes. yes. So, and you and you actually you can test that the patient is activating those same biological pathways that they would when they're taking the drug, but they're in fact just using this learned response.
0: Yes. So this is one of the mechanisms whereby the meaning response or the placebo response works. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since we've taken the lid off of this, and several years ago I helped to form a society that is now called the Society of Interdisciplinary Placebo Studies Mm -hmm. or SIPs. And if your listeners are interested in that, <laughs> their annual or semi-annual conference is starting next week in the oh. Netherlands. Oh, uh, They have a website uh, called uh, Placebo Research, and uh, you can just look up SIPs, and they mm-hmm. have a journal that comes out every month. Uh, what they've done is they've taken the lid off of placebo and said, well, what are the underlying mechanisms? And there are a number of them, but there's three primary ones. Mm-hmm. One is belief and expectation that we just talked mm-hmm. about. A uh, second is the ritual process, mm-hmm. uh, the, the social learning they call it social learning Mm -hmm. process uh, that we talked about Uh, the third one is what you've just uh, asked about which is conditioning Now, this is classical conditioning. This is just like Pavlov's dogs, Mm -hmm. right? You feed them, you ring the bell, they salivate, (laughs) okay? Then you do that a few times, and then you ring the bell, and they salivate, right? Mm -hmm. This is exactly the same thing. You take a pill. It has a therapeutic effect, and then you associate something that's not an effective treatment with it, but something that stimulates the senses, like Mm -hmm. Kool-Aid or the rose Mm -hmm. uh, that this particular patient had, Uh, and you pair those a few times, and your body... Body actually learns how to do that, and physiologically learns how to do it. It's mm-hmm. all unconscious. It's Basically. automatic. You can do it with animals. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's in fact it was discovered first with animals before they tested it in humans, and then you can begin to withdraw the active drug mm-hmm. and just do the non-drug, and the body has learned it, and the body wow. will continue to respond in these uh, in these areas. Um, and that conditioning response probably goes on all the time in practice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we take a pill. The pill is a self-care therapeutic component. Mm-hmm. If we then feel better, that act of taking a pill is a the conditioned um, uh, stimulus that goes along with the the relief mm-hmm. uh, and so the pill itself just taking the pill is active and uh, this has been elicited uh, discovered in placebo research too uh, if you take a pill for let's say ulcers uh, and you reduce the amount of pills that you're taking from say four a day to two a day mm-hmm. uh, then you'll get up to 12 people that will not respond from having just reduced reduced it to 2 a day and wow. this was looked at in the placebo arms of studies where they actually did 2 versus 4 mm-hmm. and they found those that took the pill 4 a day of the placebo arm got significant, healed significantly more often than mm-hmm. those that had the the 2 pill and this is the conditioning response happening all the time uh in our in our environment. And um, drug companies are constantly trying to get less pills, right? They'll right. take one a day. Right. But they don't account <laughs> for the fact that taking less pills is gonna offset uh, some of the therapeutic self-care and conditioning Very that will go on in those areas. They don't They don't account for that. They, they don't look at that. Mm-hmm. They just look at it compared to one-on-one.
1: Right, the dose of right. full dose in the morning versus half in the morning, half at night.
0: Right, exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, do you know if, when you have that condition response, does that apply to side effects too? Yes, it does.
0: Absolutely. There's been uh, quite a bit of research looking at the side effects Mm -hmm. uh, in the placebo arms of studies for different kinds Mm -hmm. of drugs. And they found that the side effects... uh, correspond with the uh, with the drug side effects wow. uh, this probably comes from a it may be from conditioning but it, it probably comes from expectation mm. belief in expectation mm-hmm. because when you go into a study you have to be told what the potential downside yep. side effects would be in those areas and uh, and so the patients know what to expect and then that increases the likelihood of getting those uh, mm-hmm. effects uh, and it increases the likelihood of getting the ones on the drug that you know yeah. you're actually being tested about yeah. you know the the uh, the mechanisms of self healing can be very specific. Uh, For example, if you condition somebody to get pain relief with a a narcotic, an opioid, Mm -hmm. it will will have its effect through the opioid receptors in the body and the brain. And you can reverse that with Narcan. That's a a naloxone. That's Mm -hmm. a drug that reverses uh, opioid by influencing or inhibiting the receptor there. And that's actually what's now being given out to help revive people that have overdosed on Narcan but you can reverse the pain relief of an opioid if you give somebody Narcan through that receptor. If you condition somebody to get pain relief through a non-opioid receptor let's Mm -hmm. say non-steroidal it will use the body will use a different receptor Mm. that you can't reverse with Narcan. in those areas. So it actually knows uh, not only how to reduce and improve the pain, it knows which receptor to use
1: that's amazing the body is amazing <laughs> the body is pretty amazing
0: and and the role and the power of our collective mind our uh-huh. social mind the cultural components and our belief and the rituals mm-hmm. uh, really is uh, I I call it in the book the sleeping elephant of health care mm-hmm. if we finally wake up to it pay attention to it uh, not only will it disrupt a lot of what we're doing in you know the drug industry for mm-hmm. example mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it'll also open up a whole smorgasbord of options Options for us to enhance any therapy, including drugs, Mm -hmm. uh, that we might be using,
1: and and this is this is true as well for not just like you said drugs, but lifestyle interventions. So you mentioned a couple uh, examples of this. One I think was by Elia Crum from Stanford of. Exercise and the expectations about movement and health. And is this really from the exercise we're doing, or is it from the meaning that we create around exercise is healthy for me and it's going to help me to become healthier? And so I think she did an experiment with hotel workers um, that was very interesting.
0: Yes, that's right, and and your CrossFit audience will probably be a little skeptical of this study, although it's been repeated now several times. She's done a subsequent study, actually, that's confirmed it and actually looked at underlying mechanisms. In in this study, she had hotel workers that were pretty physically active, Mm -hmm. you know, changing, uh, you know, beds and cleaning rooms Mm -hmm. all day is a lot of work. And uh, she uh, communicated to one group all the physical benefits and health benefits that they were incurring. Mm -hmm. And then the other group, she just told them they were, you know, getting some exercise but didn't communicate any of that. And then she put uh, uh, monitors on them to Mm -hmm. see what their actual physical work was. And, uh, found that the ones who were expecting that that work is going to improve their health it actually uh, increased their weight loss, reduced their cholesterol, and helped with their blood pressure. <laughs> wow. Okay? That's amazing. Compared to those that, you know, did the same amount of work but, uh, but uh, didn't do that. This happens with food, too. Mm-hmm. Okay? We're so fixated uh, in uh, the Western culture that, gee, the health benefits of food must be due to the chemicals in the food. Mm-hmm. That's right. And that's mm-hmm. why we have all these diets of, you know, high fat, low fat, you right. know, uh, you know, a paleo, uh, you know, vegan, uh, keto, vegan, everything. Exactly. <laughs> and it's all over the map because mm-hmm. it's a lot more complex than the chemicals <laughs> that are in there. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, this has been shown in a number of studies where they've looked at, uh, for example, in the Mediterranean diet, mm-hmm. uh, they've looked at gene expression uh, from ingestion of the Mediterranean diet. Uh, but then there was a researcher that when he was studying this, noticed that, well, nobody ever just ate the food okay. Mm-hmm. They actually prepared it. It was in a social environment. They sat down, they were right. talking, uh, uh, you know, you could smell it, etc. So he began to test their genes prior to them eating and found mm-hmm. that some of the, most of those same genes that were attributed to the food mm-hmm. were turned on before they ever took a bite. Wow. Uh, it's that
1: conditioning the, again. <laughs> it's The conditioning <laughs> part
0: again, exactly. And, uh, and uh, uh, some interest, some very interesting studies I write about in a book mm-hmm. about uh, the hormones, uh, appetite hormones that can be changed with that. Yeah. And I'll leave it to your listeners to read the book and find out yeah. that story. The one, you'll have
1: to read the book, read the one about the, it was a smoothie or a shake. Right. That one was Right. very interesting
0: exactly right yes yeah 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 is it the content or is it the expectation right uh, and the belief and the ritual that uh, that right. your culture has especially uh, around when, what you're eating yeah, yeah we're living
1: in a culture where so much of us are mindlessly eating or right. multitasking eating while we're doing other things regardless of whether it's food that's good for us or bad for us it's more about what our expectation is and what we're Right. Kind of our process, like right. you mentioned. If we could all be in that Mediterranean mindset, maybe things would be a little That's better. That's <laughs> exactly right.
0: It's more than just the food, isn't it? Um, you know, this is one reason why I say that uh, the core of how to implement and activate healing in your life actually goes through uh, sort of the mind and spirit mm-hmm. component. It's the meaning and the purpose component of mm-hmm. that. And there have been many studies showing that those who have purpose and meaning or doing something especially they're doing something uh, beyond just something for themselves Mm -hmm. they're actually doing something for their family or their group or the the world Mm -hmm. um people with those kinds of uh, mindsets mm-hmm. live longer by far, even with and other things are the same, even when their behavioral and lifestyle things are controlled for. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a salutogenic and, and uh, uh, health producing and longevity producing process. And, and so in the book, I talk about, first of all, finding your meaning and then attaching it to the thing that that you can do to enhance your health Mm -hmm. and there's lots of things that you can do to enhance your health. Um, and it, uh, you know, it, uh, it, It might involve diet. A lot of my patients come in and they want to use diet as a way to do that. It might Mm -hmm. involve exercise. Some do that. In a military setting, they do that a lot. Mm -hmm. It's embedded in their culture. Uh, Stress and stress management is a huge issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so very frequently people are are imbalanced in their brain's ability to manage their own stress Mm -hmm. because they're constantly stimulating the fight and flight system. Mm -hmm. And they're under-exercising the part of their brain that... uh, Uh, Induces relaxation response and healing response uh, lack of sleep that type of thing and so there's multiple ways that one can start on the process of healing but it's got to be connected to what's meaningful for you and it's got to be doable for you. Mm -hmm. Once you start that and you see you're successful then it gets easier and easier and easier Mm -hmm. in those areas but it starts with that central part uh, and that's the organizational principle and if you if you if you believe that and you do that, then this confusing array of what should I do Gets very simplified. Okay. Because it says, okay, start with what is important for you. Mm -hmm. Don't do something where there's evidence that it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's where the doc ought to come in and help bring in the evidence and that type of thing. And then work with your family, work with your community, work with your teams, work with a health coach if your health system has that Mm -hmm. to actually begin to make those changes. And Mm -hmm. once that happens, then uh, you'll get improvement in those areas. I'll tell you an example. Uh, do we have time for one more? Oh, we have plenty of time. Yeah, we have a little bit of time. So I had a, um, a, a patient that came in to see me um, uh, several years ago, actually, uh, who had had 20 years of chronic back pain mm-hmm. and about everything you could think of used on it, right? Mm-hmm. Including injections and electrical units and surgery and alternative approaches and acupuncture and that type of thing. Um, He had some, you know, pretty refractory back pain. Um, He couldn't really function very well. He was on a lot of medications, including opioids. Uh, And so I stepped back and I did an integrative health visit using a a tool that I call the Hope Note, which starts by asking him what matters. Mm -hmm. And I said, if you didn't have any back pain, what's the most important thing for you? What would you do? What brings you joy, Mm -hmm. okay? And this was a, he was a retired uh, fellow who'd been in the military. And, um, and he said, well, the very first thing I would do is I would get in my car and I would drive the five hours that I need to down to North Carolina and I'd get on the floor to play with my grandkids wow. because I can't do that right now and it's killing me, mm-hmm. okay? And so I said, okay, there's his purpose, right? Okay, <laughs> so I took him over to the physical therapist mm-hmm. and I told the physical therapist, He needs to get up and down off the floor. So we stopped trying to treat his pain. Mm -hmm. Okay. We tried to help him accomplish his goal. And I said, this is going to hurt. Okay. This is going to be tough Mm -hmm. for you. This is, you know, uh, this is not, you know, you're on pain medications Mm -hmm. and this is going to hurt. Okay. Mm -hmm. I can't control all of that. He said, I don't care if I if it'll work. Now, it took her a while, the physical therapist, to mm-hmm. work with him to build his core strength. Mm-hmm. You know, every day he had to work on this, and it did hurt. It mm-hmm. took about three or four weeks before he had the core strength where he could get up and down off the floor. He wow. still had a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. But after about four weeks, he called me up, and he had driven down North Carolina and got down on the floor and played. Wow. He told me, Doc. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know what? Mm-hmm. He kept that exercise up. That's okay? amazing. Now he's hooked, right? Yeah. He kept that exercise up, and about six to seven months later, his pain is less. Mm-hmm. He's now, you know, going off a lot of his medications. You know, we treated his pain after 20 years of trying about everything under the sun.
1: That's amazing. So important to connect. You know, you can imagine he probably yeah. had been through courses of physical therapy in the he past, had. I can imagine, over the years, but making that connection to what he really cared about, how powerful that could be. He was in the
0: driver's seat, Mm -hmm. okay? And it just took a few tools like that to Mm -hmm. do it. And that's the way you kind of organize it. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
1: And so true, especially in today's world where I think, especially a lot of people listening to this podcast, it's easy to get overwhelmed by all the things out there that can supposedly help improve your health. And no single person is going to be able to meditate 20 minutes twice a day and cook all their meals and eat perfectly and exercise and all these things. But you don't have to do all of it, right? Like you said, you start with what's most meaningful and helps you to achieve the meaning that you or the purpose that you have and then from there
0: right exactly for people that are really into physical fitness Mm -hmm. okay uh i like to tell talk to them about what um uh, mind-body practices do for the brain yes it's uh, it's uh, parallels physical fitness uh, a lot of times I'll ask my patients you know well do you have any stresses and they may mm-hmm. say they may say oh yeah I have a lot or they may say I have a little mm-hmm. but then when I ask them what they do for stress management they think that it's turning on the TV reading a book or mm-hmm. relaxing or having a drink or mm-hmm. something like that right in the end uh, but that's actually not Uh, the purpose of stress management. The purpose of stress management was described more accurately uh, by Herbert Benson, one of the Mm -hmm. fathers of mind-body medicine from Harvard, uh, uh, when he called it the relaxation response. It's a physiological response but the problem is it's not relaxation. It's actually exercise. Mm. So when you're go, go, going all the time, that is a stimulation of what's called the sympathetic nervous system. It's one of the two parts of your autonomic nervous system. Mm. Uh, it can't be going and the relaxation part, which is the parasympathetic nervous system, can't be turned on full speed at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. They're balancing each other out. Yep. And we have a society in which uh, the sympathetic nervous system is getting stimulated all the time. And it It doesn't have to feel like stress okay it's just like I'm busy okay Mm -hmm. I got to do this Uh, and what happens is that uh, if you were to exercise just one muscle and not balance it with the other muscle Mm -hmm. pretty soon you wouldn't be able to actually move the other way right that muscle would atrophy and that's what happens with the parasympathetic nervous system it atrophies and then we end up getting uh, uh, less ability to manage stress when it comes to long sleep issues. Inflammatory processes go up. Digestion problems incur mm-hmm. from that because this parasympathetic helps with the digestive system. Multiple chronic uh, problems. And so I like people to think about it as brain exercise. Mm-hmm. If you were exercising the parasympathetic part. And the way you do that is through some type of relaxation response exercise, Mm -hmm. that this actually strengthens that part of your brain. And this has been shown in MRI studies, okay? If you engage in a deep relaxation 20 minutes a day, and there's a variety of ways to do that. But if you do that for eight weeks, you actually grow the left frontal cortex in your brain, which makes it easier to control the fight, flight, and sympathetic response. It makes Mm -hmm. it easier to sleep. because it makes it easier to go into this healing uh, state. You're actually building the brain muscle. Mm. Mm -hmm. And just like You know, one exercise doesn't fit all for Mm -hmm. everybody, although for some people CrossFit might, (laughs) but some might not. Some might like to swim. Some might like to, you know, walk. Some Mm -hmm. might like to run or ride. Uh, It's the same thing with brain exercise. Uh, The relaxation response can be induced through um, meditation. It can be uh, induced through uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction. It can be induced through imagery. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be induced through uh, bowel feedback. Uh, one of my favorites is heart rate variability, bowel feedback. Okay? <laughs> uh, it's it's just getting into that yes. deep relaxation zone. And that grows the strength of your uh, mind and your brain to actually do many of these things mm-hmm. uh, that enhance healing that we've been talking about.
1: Right. And so important. And so, you know, I like how you mentioned there's so many different ways you can do that. But like you said, a lot of people would think maybe watching TV or relaxing on the couch is strengthening this parasympathetic system, but not necessarily the case. Similarly, I hear a lot of people saying, well, exercise is my stress relief. That's how I handle stress. And Mm -hmm. that is, you know, a good way, you know, exercise is healthy. It's a good way to help, um, handle stress, but you can't do that in replacement of not of training your parasympathetic system. That's like you correct. said, when you're exercising, your parasympathetic system is not on.
0: That's correct. No, that's correct. And and just like with physical exercise, if you're doing it regularly,
1: mm-hmm. okay,
0: then it doesn't take as much to keep it and maintain it strong, mm-hmm. right? Okay. If you're really out poorly conditioned and mm-hmm. you want to get conditioned, it's going to take a lot of work to get right. to that spot. Same way with the brain. If you haven't been using it, etc., cetera, then, uh, you know, it's going to take your 20 to 30 minutes a day for a long time to mm-hmm. build it up. But once it's there, then you can actually maintain it with, you know, a much lower level of, of exercise mm-hmm. or, or intermittent component mm-hmm. using things like, you know, deep breathing regularly, you know, just built into your day. Right. You have that
1: in your back pocket.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: You also talk a lot about... Our environment and how our environment can invoke a healing response or something that's more stressful. And this is something I actually experienced myself this past week. I was amazed by how much of a difference this made. My husband and I have been living in this house for four years. It has a small fenced-in backyard. And every spring we say, okay, we're going to clean out the backyard. We're going to start using the backyard. And every year we get busy, it doesn't happen. And so this year we finally did it. And we put a little table back there and we spent the entire day on Sunday just in the backyard and we weren't, you know, we were working on our laptops or like we would eat or whatever, but we were outside for the entire day. And the impact that that had on how I felt in my mood was unbelievable compared right. to if I had been sitting in my darker house without any natural sunlight. And so it's something I always knew to be true, but I feel like I've experienced it in this very profound way just recently. So that's something that I've been thinking a lot more about now is how can I optimize my environment?
0: That's correct. The physical environment has a profound effect on our body and our mind. Uh, The ancient traditions have known this for a long time. They Mm -hmm. actually utilize uh, the the physical environment. Uh, I write about the Japanese art of forest bathing.
2: Yes. Uh, And
0: I had a patient who actually healed herself by doing that, uh, that I write about in the book, who had uh, some some pretty severe chronic illnesses. Um, And the research now shows that if you spend sort of, uh, you know, just one weekend out in nature, Mm -hmm. you know, hiking, immersed in nature, that it bumps your uh, natural killer cells up in your body by a significant amount. I think it's about 40%. And that gets maintained for another, for about a week to 10 days.
3: That's amazing. In
0: those areas. And there's lots of effects like that. Mm -hmm. The exposure to the physical environment is there. There's a wonderful book that I refer to uh, in there, done by uh, a 30 year NIH researcher who's now at the University of Arizona, Mm -hmm. Esther Sternberg, uh, that talks about, uh, how the physical environment influences the body,
3: mm-hmm.
0: uh, you know, in, in some dramatic ways and how then you can create an optimal healing environment, yes. uh, yeah, you know, to enhance that healing. And it's why it's one of the four sort of dimensions that I ask all my patients about, or I recommend at the end of the book that mm-hmm. people ask themselves about, uh, uh, what's their physical environment like? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, my wife uh, had uh, breast cancer a few years ago and we knew she was undergoing, You know, some pretty serious surgery and chemotherapy and that type of thing. Uh, And so, as she was exploring what would help support her, social components, friends, family were a key part of that. Mm -hmm. We had a young grandchild that Mm -hmm. she loved and wanted to be. Uh, still be with uh, with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she also uh, realized that she had to have a place that she could go to to truly, deeply relax and recover as she went through those kinds of treatments. And so uh, she modified her bedroom oh. in a way that had low-level light, had mm-hmm. some of the art that was personally meaningful to mm-hmm. her on the wall and nothing else mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that had natural light that, mm-hmm. that came in, soothing colors. We switched the bed out so that she felt comfortable with it mm-hmm. and that type of thing. And that was sort of her recovery haven. And when she, as she went through the treatments over several months, she would go there and it would help her actually recover and function, and function better mm-hmm. uh, as she was going through that. So that's another example of creating an optimal healing environment uh, uh, that can have an effect on, on, you know, the physiological and the psychological, and in her case, the social. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah.
1: And speaking of the social, one other example I wanted to bring up, we, I think the CrossFit community and listeners are very aware of how important social relationships are. And that's what a part, part of, I think what makes our CrossFit affiliates so strong is that there is a very strong bond that develops among members, um, but you mentioned a study that was done with rabbits and how the impact of love for these rabbits, what that had on their cardiovascular disease, um, which is something, you know, you, we know that stress obviously has a huge impact on the development of cardiovascular disease, but I never... Heard such a great example of the way that love could kind of protect us.
0: That's right. Now that was a fascinating study. It came about just by chance. Back in the 60s, when uh, the cholesterol hypothesis was just emerging that mm-hmm. high cholesterol might contribute to cardiovascular disease, one of the um, a study uh, models was done with rabbits mm-hmm. as an animal. And what they would do is they would feed rabbits high cholesterol diets. And you can imagine that. Here's a vegetarian <laughs> on a high cholesterol diet, right? What is uh, this? And, and it? would routinely produce pretty significant heart disease Uh okay and they would use this to study the mechanisms and then uh, in one of these and it was being done all over the world this type of research and in one of the laboratories uh, they noticed that certain uh, rabbits uh, were not getting it even though they were still getting the high cholesterol diets Mm -hmm. they weren't getting the heart disease and uh, so they didn't know why that was but then they noticed the pattern was that they were all along the bottom Mm -hmm. shelves and not in the higher shelves and as it turned out there was an animal handler who was short, couldn't reach the higher shelves. So somebody else would take care of the higher shelves Mm -hmm. and she would go in on the lower shelves. And she, while she was cleaning the cages, she would take the rabbits out. Mm -hmm. She would hold them in her lap and she would pet them and talk to them and sing to them before she put them back in. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the the director of the lab was saying, This couldn't really be what was going on. Mm-hmm. That's couldn't do it. So they did a formal study where they randomized pay, uh, rabbits to get love mm-hmm. uh, or no love <laughs> uh, in the cages. And sure enough, uh, just taking the rabbits out and petting them and singing to them and love wow. them, reduced cardiovascular disease by over 60%, as Huge. much as the cholesterol lowering did. Wow. Uh, but you couldn't patent it, you couldn't make money off of it. <laughs> so now we take uh, things to lower cholesterol, but we don't tell our patients to go find love and right. express love, right? <laughs> so that's a huge thing we can take advantage you of. You bet. So I ask all my patients about their social support, mm-hmm. This has been shown, uh, you know, mm-hmm. beyond rabbits, obviously, yes. <laughs> uh, but social support is a core part of staying healthy, keeping healthy and even healing. Mm-hmm. And so I ask all my patients about their social support uh, and if they're lonely and if, uh, if they don't have social support, then one of the main things I offer to them or try to help them with is to identify. Uh, a way of getting that through a club or through, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, um, uh, some kind of a social activity or a companion or something mm-hmm. like that that can help support that process.
1: One more example I want to bring up, going back to more of the mental and um, spiritual component is visualization. And you mentioned it as one of the things that you can do. Guided imagery is one of the things you can do to bring up that parasympathetic tone. But, it's something that we use in sport all the time. Athletes use visualization to practice their perfect execution of their plan and everything going according to the way that they've trained. But it's something that I think, and myself having done that as an athlete, now thinking, why don't I just apply this to my day-to-day life? (laughs) There's so many things that I could probably impact by visualizing them beforehand. Um, And I know it's used, you know, for people in business or various other careers, but it's something that can be used for our health too. You bet. And you gave a great example of a patient with pneumonia using visualization of the air going into his lungs and how that had an impact. Right. But so many ways that we can visualize what's happening in our body and help to maximize that healing.
0: Yes. No, I think, uh, your experience in sport, and I'm sure, you know, the, the research showing that just the mental, um, visualization of the sport can have mm-hmm. a pretty, uh, a profound impact on the physical performance, mm-hmm. even if a person's not able to actually do yeah. the full physical practice of that. And you're, you're right. Uh, this is a great way for people to get, uh, empowered by and get tools to change their own physiology. There's been quite a bit of research on this. Mm-hmm. A lot of it around perioperative care, for example, um, uh, in which visualizing low bleeding, rapid healing, et cetera, actually then results in improved, mm-hmm. uh, you know, less bleeding and improved mm-hmm. healing in those areas. It should become part of a routine aspect of perioperative care, in my opinion. We've done a lot of work, and I uh, I put this on my website, actually, with a woman uh, who does visualization specifically for clinical uh, okay. Conditions, pain, uh, sleep, depression, insomnia—this mm-hmm. type of thing. Her name is Belaruth Naprasak, yes. and uh,
1: she has all of the guided imagery. She podcasts. does exactly,
0: and uh, and so on my website, uh, you can actually download for free several of hers, and mm-hmm. she has very inexpensive uh, approaches that uh, many of which have been tested. We mm-hmm. tested several in randomized control trials. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, shown them to be very effective. These are simple. These are easy to deliver. You can get them for very inexpensive off of uh, off of the web. You can put them into your phone. You can engage in them. Not only do they de- uh, de- deliver the um, a relaxation response, but they also actually help train your body how Mm -hmm. to physiologically respond in particular ways that you want to do. So that's highly recommended. I I offer that uh, to all my patients that come in with chronic
1: illness. Getting two for one. (laughs) That's right.
0: Get two for one. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Well, I want to start wrapping up. I have a few more questions. So Mm -hmm. one is just for people who are listening, we have physicians or various people working in healthcare who may be listening how can they tap into this extra 80% of healing and then likewise for patients other than reading starting by reading your book of course how can they start to tap into this extra 80% yeah.
0: so i'm asked uh, about this a lot mm-hmm. and especially by people that are working within healthcare systems that are pretty stressful, mm-hmm. pretty fast that uh, require lots of procedures mm-hmm. of 15 to 20 minute visits. Right. Uh, volume over value uh, is unfortunately uh, you know what we still have embedded in mm-hmm. healthcare care uh, in, in our system. It's a sort of an acute care model. And so they want to know, are there simple ways I can begin to do whole person integrative health mm-hmm. in my practice? So I've gotten so many questions about that that uh, the foundation that I work for has said, why don't you take some of your time in your team and begin to build tools that people can imp- implement in their practice now mm-hmm. and the types of practices that they're in mm-hmm. and that people can actually utilize in their lives now without having to go through any kind of particular special training mm-hmm. or without having to change in the, the practice. So we're now doing a lot of this. And so we're putting those resources on my website that you can do. And these are things like the imagery components mm-hmm. that you can bring out. Um, the one for a practice that I like the best, and that I encourage uh, healthcare providers to do, and I encourage patients to ask for Mm -hmm. to do in partnership with their healthcare providers is something called the Hope Note. Yes. Okay? Yes. And this is a a simple tool. You prepare for it with something called the Personalized Health Inventory, where you just ask a set of questions about Mm -hmm. what matters and what are you ready to do and Mm -hmm. what would you like to do. Then the Hope Note actually asks about the four dimensions of healing that I described. I've learned out of having looked at these... Uh, health systems from around the world over the years Uh, and then uh, at the end a personalized health plan and that personalized health plan usually picks one or two things that you want to change and then you focus on that uh uh, and then work with a medical assistant, a health coach, sometimes a friend or a life coach to just accomplish that particular goal in those areas. Uh, and that process actually works pretty well. If, it, if, uh, if uh, you're a provider and you can then organize so your medical assistants are trained appropriately in health coaching, mm-hmm. then they can actually be the ones to do it mm-hmm. i find that medical assistants and formal health coach trained are much better mm-hmm. than physicians are and medical <laughs> providers are i'm actually not very Probably. good at it right i'm trying to say oh do this do that that's yeah. not the way you do it okay there's a whole evidence base for how behavior change occurs mm-hmm. Uh, And then uh, uh, groups work really well, Mm -hmm. okay? Uh, If if a person gets engaged in a group activity, they can learn from the the other people in the group Mm -hmm. who are then moving forward in those same things. How to address challenges and issues that come up in those areas, and so um, I encourage uh, all of my, um, uh, my 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 uh, practices and providers that we're, we're, we that we train uh, to consider doing group visits uh, and doing shared decision making uh, and reorganize their teams. It doesn't take more money; it just takes a little change in how it's reorganized, and they can deliver this within the system that they have right now. And so uh, the bottom line is uh, implement a hope note. Do an integrative health visit, and if you're a, a provider and you want your per, your practitioner to do it, go in and say, I'd like you to do an integrative health visit with me. I'd like to go over the other 80% that mm-hmm. will keep me healthy. Uh, and if they say, what's that? Then point them to the website or point them to the book and say, here's the tools. This yeah. is how to do it. And Try it out.
1: Love it. Um, what are some of the things that you implement in your day-to-day life to maximize this 80 percent? I don't know if you have mm-hmm. kind of a typical day in your life and how that goes, if you would mind sharing with that with us. Well,
0: it varies a lot. I travel a fair <laughs> amount. Uh, I still see patients every week, and so uh, and it's in a uh, standard family medicine clinic and, mm-hmm. uh, and that type of thing. Uh, and so uh, what I found uh, over the years for me that really Paying attention to what gives me joy, mm-hmm. uh, what I love, uh, is uh, is um, is key to kind of keeping balanced and keeping focused on those areas. Uh, I eat a Mediterranean diet as much as possible mm-hmm. because that has the most evidence of any diet that's around mm-hmm. for its health benefits, mind and body in mm-hmm. those areas. Uh, it's not a vegetarian diet, um, it's uh, it's a particular diet with high fruits and nuts, it is very heavily vegetarian based, fish, olive oils, that type of thing. Um, um, I, you can easily find how to do that, mm-hmm. how to do recipes on that type of thing. I exercise regularly, and that includes uh, uh, an alternating aerobic exercise and strength and stretching. So mm-hmm. I'll do strength and stretching one day, and then I'll do aerobic exercise. I'm a runner. I learned how to run a long time ago. <laughs> I love running, but I also ski and do other you mm-hmm. know sports in those areas. Um, uh I found over the years that I used to meditate quite a bit. I found that I've been able to actually incorporate mm-hmm. mind-body practices sort of into my routine.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, one of the beautiful things about the mindfulness movement that uh, John Kabat-Zinn sort of brought in and expanded mm-hmm. in this country uh, and that is now done at a variety of places on Washington and University of Rochester and others um, uh, is that, uh, it's sort of once you get it, once that brain muscle is working, then it's pretty easy to elicit. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, it's pretty easy to turn on. You have to keep practicing it. Yeah. Okay. And one of the best ways to practice it is to, uh, appreciate, uh, what you have mm-hmm and not just say, oh, just I'm lucky, Mm -hmm. okay, but to actually uh, make an appreciation list and think about three things that you're grateful for Mm
3: -hmm.
0: in the morning and in the evening. And that simple tool actually has been shown to not only improve social relationships, improve joy, Mm -hmm. uh, but for health professionals that are faced with it, it reduces burnout in busy lives. And so those are things I try to incorporate regularly into my life every single day.
1: Amazing. Well, I think that overlapped with my next question. So I have three questions I always end with on the podcast. And I have a great family, by the way. Oh, of course, <laughs> of course. The love you have to put in there, too. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> I have a three-year-old grandchild. I've got three kids. I have a wonderful wife, uh, and I have friends. I have yeah. a lot of friends that, uh, that you know we go hiking and mm-hmm. do things together. Uh, and you gotta have to spend time with that. It's not a waste of time.
1: No, it's not
0: a waste of time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, so the first question I think you already answered, but maybe you can just reiterate would be the three things you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health. Mm
0: -hmm. So one is gratitude. Mm -hmm. Okay. The other is spending time with my family. Okay. Okay. Uh, the third is paying attention to a Mediterranean diet. Okay. Uh, and, um, the three things. You three only things. Yeah, those are three. The, well, then, then I, I exercise in a <laughs> way that I said. Uh, you know, uh, sleep is extremely important, mm-hmm. and we're sleep-deprived, uh, um, and so— uh, getting sleep is uh, and making sure that the environment in which you sleep mm-hmm. uh, is in inductive to deep sleep and there's ways to do that i actually have a, a tool set on my website mm-hmm. on sleep hygiene that describes how to set up the room to make sure to help induce sleep
3: mm-hmm.
0: uh, you know those are the core things yeah. okay Keep those, it simple. Are, those are the <laughs> core things right it is it is quite yeah. simple actually uh, and you know if you can't do them all in a day which you can't okay then just make sure you do them all in a week, Mm -hmm. okay, or make sure you pick one and say, okay, this one I'm going to improve. I'm Mm going to begin to embed that so that it becomes, you know, uh, regular and routine Mm -hmm. in my life.
1: What, is there one thing that you know would have a big impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it, or it's one that you Mm -hmm. seem to not find a way to to get into your routine as, as easily as the other's?
0: Yeah. Writing poetry. Mm. <laughs> I used to write a lot of poetry. I have okay. a poetry book that I've been holding on for a oh. while. I'm thinking about publishing and <laughs> I, for some reason, I don't know why I haven't published it yet. It's all ready. Uh-huh. I just need to get it out to the yeah, publisher. Now you're talking um, about it. You can get yeah, it
2: out there. <laughs> I will do that.
0: Now I've committed, right? So uh, I am just forcing me to do it. That's the one thing I haven't to do is so actually say, I'm going to do, say you're going to do something yeah. actually helps. Yeah. Uh, and I love to write poetry. Okay. It, uh, it, uh, it causes you to pause. Uh, or if you pause, it emerges. And it links that um, what should I say? It links the spiritual world uh, 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 that is so that subtle. Uh, the uh, the unconscious world that influences so much of what happens in our life including bringing us joy and meeting and health as we've talked about with the conscious life and we you know spend a lot of time in our conscious world uh, and our unconscious world is going on all the time mm-hmm. and when you expand consciousness to try to incorporate both of those uh, then that's when healing really emerges in, it, in its in its fullest flower and I find poetry actually does that for me. Yeah. It allows me to cross across the threshold between mm-hmm. the conscious and the unconscious uh, and allow them to communicate with each other. Art can do that in, mm-hmm. in a variety of ways. It doesn't, mm-hmm. Mine happens to be poetry but some people do it with painting some people do it with music, music yeah. uh, in those areas but you know you have um, you have a core part whether you call it a spiritual you call it a soul you call it the inner life uh, it's uh, it's actually been proven in experiments in the laboratory mm-hmm. which I didn't go into a lot in my book but maybe that will be part of my next book Yeah. Um, uh, that uh, there's a non-local factor in human existence. Mm-hmm. And the non-local factor is, uh, is right now a mystery. It's not explained completely mm-hmm. uh, by what we experience in everyday life or even the experiments that we do in, in, in standard Western uh, science. Uh, it's there, it's been proven. Uh, We don't actually know what it is. They talk about it in quantum uh, uh, physics Mm -hmm. all the time. It's this, you know, this quantum, uh, you know, non-locality component. Mm -hmm. But it's been demonstrated to occur in in psychology, uh, for example. uh, And it's been part of spiritual traditions Mm -hmm. for millennia. Uh, And I think this is a a frontier that if we were to take our our scientific lens, which is pretty young, by the way, Mm -hmm. you know, good, you know, uh, critical science yeah. through a Western perspective has you know, only been around for at the most 500 years and, and in healthcare only for about 150 years mm-hmm. at the most. Um, if we were to apply that lens to this, uh, those spiritual uh, characteristics, uh, then I think we would find an incredible, uh, opening, uh, that has something to do with healing. Mm. <laughs>
1: Well, we'll look forward to that in the next book, maybe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been written about actually already. Uh, It's called Real Magic by Dean Radin. Ah, okay. And uh, he's another one you could have on your show.
1: That would be wonderful. My last question is, what does a healthy life look like to you?
0: What does a healthy life look like to me? So it uh, starts with joy and uh, it goes into uh, a social environment of love, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from that, it uh, you know, has to do with balance. Mm. Uh, it has to do with balance in terms of behavior, uh, and then being out uh, and exposed to nature. And I think that's a, that's a healthy life to me, okay? People that are able to, to have those four components of that are much more likely to live longer, to deal with illness if it comes along, because mm-hmm. it does, uh, and to and to have a higher quality of life, to have the well-being part, not just the health part.
1: Wonderful. Well, uh, your book is called How Healing Works, so I hope that people who are listening are now intrigued enough to go check it out. Where can people find your website um, or other things that you're doing?
0: Yeah, so my website is just my name, drwaynejonas.com, mm-hmm. so no dots or hyphens or anything uh and that's where all the tools are that we've talked about mm-hmm. uh for both uh, people and and uh, the health profession uh the book can be gotten anywhere mm-hmm. uh, amazon or you know uh, where you get uh, you can buy the books. audiobook
1: too that comes in handy you can handy. get the audiobook mm-hmm. it's
0: been translated i think into six or seven languages now so if you prefer to read it in spanish it's available <laughs> out in spanish or german or Dutch. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah. Uh, Sounds yeah. good. No.
1: Well, thank you so much. This has been amazing to sit down and talk with you. And thank you, you know, personally for inspiring me from early in my career. I hope to use all of this in my practice um, and continue to learn about this healing response.
0: Well, wonderful. Well, good luck to you and your husband as you open up your practice, as oh. you finish your training and, and get out there. You're going to be the leaders and are the leaders of healthcare of the future. So thank good you. luck to you.
1: Hey there. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I learned so much from Dr. Jonas through reading his book, some of his research, as well as in this very insightful conversation. And I hope that you learned a thing or two as well. Some of my biggest takeaways from our conversation are number one, the meaning response. We know that the specific effect of treatment is super important, and this is what we study in randomized controlled trials, but the specific effect is often small, and there's so much healing that we can take advantage of outside of that effect. Maximizing our healing relationships, our expectations about healing, the cultural context in which healing takes place, and many other factors can help us take full advantage of this meaning response, which often occurs through our subconscious mind. The second takeaway that I have would be the importance of meaning and purpose in healing. Meaning and purpose has been something that's been hugely important for me in my own life, but helping patients to draw that connection between what's most important to them in life and their own health can help them to make huge strides in healing. Now I'm making it a habit to ask all my patients two simple questions. What do you want your health for? And what is most important to you in life? In reality, these questions are important for all of us to answer for ourselves when we're up against different challenges or facing the possibility of behavior change in order to improve our own health. My third takeaway would be two specific lifestyle changes which were discussed in this episode. Now, we talk about lifestyle change all the time on this podcast. You know that I love talking about lifestyle first, but two things that Dr. Jonas brought up Um, are things that I had not thought about recently. And one was healing spaces. And the second was visualization. So I mentioned in this conversation how much I've noticed an impact on my own mood by spending time outside. And it's made me think a lot more about the type of spaces that I'm spending my time in and the impact those have on my health. Visualization is another tool which I used very frequently as I was competing in the CrossFit Games and as an athlete throughout my early life, but it's something that I don't often take as much advantage of as I could now for my own health or for that of my patients. So two things to keep in your back pocket. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode and had some great takeaways as well. To make sure you never miss an episode and to receive exclusive content from me, head to my website juliefouche.com and subscribe to my email list. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and consider giving the podcast a five-star rating on iTunes. Also, don't forget to share your stories. If you or someone you know has used lifestyle to overcome a serious health challenge, please send me an email at info at i I'll choose some of these inspiring stories to share here on future episodes. Don't forget you can train with me through Beyond the Whiteboard by visiting trainwithjuliefouché.com. Thank you again so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Pursuing Health. This episode is brought to you by ButcherBox. I'm really excited to share with you that this month, in addition to $20 off your first order, ButcherBox has a very special gift that is so good, I can't even mention it on the podcast. You can learn more about it at butcherbox.com forward slash Julie, where you can find all the details. So if you know me, you know I care a lot about where my food comes from, and that's particularly true when it comes to meat. I believe that meat can have a place in a well-rounded diet, but there's a huge difference when it comes to animals that are raised in feedlots and that are fed primarily corn and soy and routinely given growth hormones and antibiotics, and those that are responsibly raised fed their natural diet and never given growth hormones or antibiotics. High-quality meat like this is hard to find, but ButcherBox makes it super easy because they deliver 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, and heritage-breed pork, as well as wild Alaskan. Sockeye Salmon directly to your doorstep. All of their products are humanely raised and never, ever given antibiotics or hormones. This gives me some peace of mind knowing that I can trust my meat is the highest quality out there and will taste amazing. Plus, they offer free shipping anywhere in the contiguous 48 United States, which is awesome. Right now, ButcherBox has put together a very special deal for all Pursuing Health listeners. If you order your first box, you'll get a very special gift plus an additional $20 off. And as I mentioned, that special gift is so epic, I can't even talk about it here. You'll have to go to butcherbox.com forward slash Julie to check out the deal and get your $20 off your first order. Now remember, it's only available until supplies last, so go check it out right now. Once again, that's $20 off plus a special gift with your first box by going to butcherbox.com forward slash Julie. Check it out. I promise it will be worth it.